our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. By the time that I was a junior on the varsity baseball team uh, down at Thompson High School, I uh, already had a a pretty clear calling to full-time vocational ministry. And, you know, like any good sports team in the Bible Belt, no pregame warm-up is complete until you trot down the third baseline, take a knee, huddle up, remove your caps, and pray the Lord's Prayer. Well, as the, the church kid with the calling to ministry, I led our team in that prayer for about two years, and I, I loved doing it. But I'm betting, right, that, that many of us had the same experience and can usually just say the Lord's Prayer without even thinking about it. And I think that's, that's one reason why we really should study the Lord's Prayer. We need to remind ourselves what we're praying when we pray like Jesus taught us to pray. So last week, Jacob started our series on the Lord's Prayer by looking at Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And we saw the the intimacy of God, that he is our Father. We saw the transcendence of God, that he's in heaven and we are not. And we saw the glory of God, that his name is to be hallowed or sanctified or made holy. And so today, we're going to study the next verse in the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6, verse 10, which says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the God that we call Father is also a king, able to meet our requests before we even ask. So let me remind us just here at the beginning that the Lord's Prayer doesn't come to us out of the blue, out of nowhere. It comes nestled into the context of a larger section of Jesus's teaching called the Sermon on the Mount. And you may be familiar with with other verses in the Sermon on the Mount, like blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, Uh, You may know that Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount equates anger with murder, right? That if you've been angry in your heart towards someone, you've committed murder in your heart. Or or if you've lusted after another person, then, then you've committed adultery in your heart. But what Jesus really is trying to do in the Sermon on the Mount, he's trying to show us that the heart level issues really matter. And Jesus uh, is is trying to invite his disciples into a a heart-deep righteousness rather than just a skin-deep righteousness, a works righteousness. And so similarly, because the, the Lord's Prayer falls in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has given us a prayer to help us desire what we should desire, to, to help us learn what our deepest wants and needs actually should be. He's, he's given us a prayer as, as a means of grace to help us desire the things that we should desire, even though we may not naturally choose them ourselves. There's a, a quote attributed to the French author of uh, a children's book called The Little Prince. His name is Antoine de Saint-Upery. And he, he says this, 
If you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood and don't assign them tasks and work, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. Then you'll get a ship worthy of the sea. And I, I think that's what Jesus is trying to do for us in the Lord's Prayer. He is, he is teaching us to long for the endless immensity of the kingdom of God. He's revealing the prayer of a heart that's, that's rightly aligned with the Father's so that his disciples can also pray with hearts that are aligned with the Father's. So, so we're gonna study this, this verse, Matthew chapter 6, verse 10, line by line. And as we do, we're gonna see uh, three ways that praying your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, three ways that praying that prayer transforms the lives of followers of Jesus. So here's the first point. Disciples of Jesus desire the Father's kingdom. Disciples of Jesus desire the Father's kingdom. The first line of this verse says, your kingdom come. And it really shouldn't surprise us that that's the first line because the first message that we hear Jesus preach is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's a, a frequent topic in the teaching of Jesus, the, the kingdom of heaven. And so uh, really this, this first phrase here in verse 10 is, is an, an outflow of what we've just prayed in verse 9. That if, if we want our Father's name to be hallowed, to be made holy, then, then we should want the place where he dwells to be established. And so when, when we are praying your kingdom come, Jesus is teaching that his disciples desire the kingdom. So we, we need to ask, right? Well, then when we pray your kingdom come, what is the kingdom? What are we praying for? And here's a, a simple definition of the kingdom. The kingdom is the king's power over the king's people in the king's place. The king's power over the king's people in the king's place. And really, the establishment of the kingdom of God was the plan from the very first page of Scripture, very first page of the Bible. In creation, God himself acts as a cosmic king, and he decrees and he speaks, and things happen. His words have power. And he establishes his power over his people, that's Adam and Eve, the first humans, in his place, the Garden of Eden. And it's, it's crazy because in Genesis 1.28, God, God blesses the first humans, Adam and Eve, and, and he um, tells them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And this is the crazy thing. He shares his power, his dominion with human beings. He says, work and keep the garden, participate in my rule and reign. And we know it takes about three chapters for that newfound power to go right to their heads. They try to establish their own kingdom. There was a coup, a mutiny, a rebellion in the Garden of Eden, and the first humans set themselves up as kings and try to go their own way and take their borrowed power and use it for their own good and for their own glory to do what's right in their own eyes. And really, the rest of the story of the Bible is a story of God's plan to reestablish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. 
Later in the story of the Bible, he, he calls a people, a new people to himself, the people of Israel. And he says, you're gonna be my treasured possession. You're gonna be a kingdom of priests. So, you, priests, so you're gonna represent me to the world and you're gonna bring the world to me. And he gives them two human examples, David and Solomon, uh, as, as tangible earthly examples of what it looks like when a king rules rightly. But we know, right, the people of God, they, they go their own way. They set up their own kingdom. They try to lead their own way. And really, it's, it's not limited to the biblical storyline either. Right? We, we all have joined the rebellion. We're all trying to set up our own little kingdoms to meet our own desires for our own glory. And you know, we're not literally kings, but we're always working to establish our own power in our own places. Whether that's academic prowess, right? Amassing scholarships and accolades to get into the college of choice or, or whether that's on social media, you might be trying to get some followers or get Instagram famous or it might be cushy bank accounts that, that you'd use to, to establish your own kingdom or it might be your property value or your house that you see that as a, a status marker or sometimes even our families, Right? We can tell them where to go and what to do and make sure that they are involved in the right things. Or, or uh, really, it's not even, it's not, we're, we're not exempt as ministers even, either. Sometimes it's easy for us to see our own little ministry areas as our own little kingdoms. And so, so we all have to fight against that urge to, to set up our own kingdoms. But we're all striving in our own little subtle ways to set up our own kingdoms. And so when Jesus invites us to pray, thy kingdom come, he's inviting us to align our hearts, our hopes, our desires with the Father's heart. He's teaching that his disciples desire the Father's kingdom and that his Father's kingdom will actually meet the deepest desires of our hearts. God is, is the mighty king over all of creation, yes, but he's also our Father. He knows what we need before we even ask and we can trust that his kindly rule is gonna shatter and break the curse of sin's tyranny. He's teaching us when we pray, thy kingdom come, that disciples of Jesus desire the Father's kingdom, his, his power over his people in his place, which leads us to the second line, which reads, your will be done. Here's the second point. Disciples of Jesus submit to the Father's will. Disciples of Jesus submit to the Father's will. This is also a logical outflow of what we've just prayed. If we want the Father's name to be hallowed and made holy, and we want his kingdom to be established, then it's logical that his will is going to be accomplished when his name is hallowed and the place where he reigns is established. They're connected to, they, they flow from one another. And so if we align our hearts with his goodness and his holiness, then our wills are more easily aligned to his will. I think it's one thing, right, to, to pray for the kingdom to come, for all of the evil and sin and injustice and wrong to be swept away under his kindly rule. But when we pray, your will be done, that really hits home. Because if the Father really is good and holy, and if his kingdom really is the true kingdom, then his will really is the only one 
worthy to be accomplished. It really confronts us as the kings and queens in our own little castles presiding over our own kingdoms. Thomas Cranmer, who was a a leader in the English Reformation, is paraphrased to, to say this. What the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. So what we love is what we choose. And whatever we choose, the mind is gonna rationalize to make that acceptable. And so praying here, as Jesus teaches us, your will be done, is, becomes like a compass for our hearts. It's aligning us with true north so that when we choose, we, we are choosing from a heart that is aligned with the Father's. When we pray your will be done, we're actually opening ourselves up to experiences that we really could, could never have guessed or expected. I don't know if you've listened to the Shades podcast at all over the last couple of months, but I personally have really enjoyed uh, hearing stories from fellow staff members. And um, as I was thinking about this phrase, your will be done, there's a pretty common theme in most of these stories where you come to a fork in the road and you're either heading your way or you're heading the Lord's way. And uh, if our hearts, right, Jesus is is showing us uh, in the Sermon on the Mount that more often than not, we're gonna default to our way and our selfish desires. But if we can calibrate our hearts to know that the Father knows what we need before we even ask, then we can align our wills with his and go his way. I can think of two moments like that personally for me. Um, I already said that I played baseball in high school and uh, I had real intentions of playing in college. So I had an open door to, to walk on at Sanford and try to earn a spot. And uh, after my senior year, you know, I'd also received a scholarship for ministry. And so I had these two things out in front of me, baseball, which I loved, and ministry, which I was feeling called to, but I didn't, I, I just had this wrestling in my soul. I had no peace about which direction to go. And one night as I was praying, laying in bed, Uh, listening to music, the song that played while I was called to ministry came on. And you know, if the Lord can orchestrate an iPod algorithm, then he can do just about anything. So I uh, laid down my my rights, my desires to, to walk onto the baseball field because I knew that if I did that, all of my hopes and my dreams and my worth would be tied up in that baseball field. And then the second story is kind of the opposite of that. I was here on staff with the college ministry and I had my own selfish ideas of how this was gonna go for me. I was gonna work and I was gonna be the next, the next guy, the next college minister, right? And, and to make a long story short, that job disappeared. I ended up working alongside Chad for a couple of years and, and I really had to deal with my own selfishness, my own ambition. What, what do I really want? out of life, and and am I really following the Lord's way? But I can stand up here 10 years later almost and say, God is good and faithful, and he knows what we need before we even ask. And it's not too late for you. You can submit to the Father's will today. But you don't have to take my word for it, and you don't have to take the word of anybody on the Shades podcast word for it. You can take Jesus' word for it. 
Because when Jesus is teaching us to pray, thy will be done, he is not teaching us to pray anything that he himself would not pray. In the Garden of Eden, our first parents exerted their own wills and tried to set up their own kingdoms. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus looked arrest and death and crucifixion in the face and aligned his human will with the Father's heart and said, my Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. You can breathe deeply when you pray, thy will be done, because Jesus knows the difficulty of what it means to pray that prayer. You can take heart because he hasn't left us here to pray that prayer in our own power, but he sent the spirit into our hearts to comfort and encourage and intercede for us as we pray that prayer. We can rest easy knowing that Jesus knows even more deeply than we do our temptation and our sin. He knows our weakness better than we do. C.S. Lewis described this like a man walking against the wind. When you're just walking headlong into the wind, it's coming at you and you're just tired. You lay down to get out of the wind. But he says that Jesus has walked the full length of the wind. He has walked it to the end. Only he knows the full weight of the wind of our sin and temptation because for the joy that was set before him, he walked it to the end for us. We can take heart when we pray, thy will be done because Jesus is out for our good. This leads us to our our last line of this verse. On earth as it is in heaven. Here's the third point. Disciples of Jesus live between two worlds. Disciples of Jesus live between two worlds. This line shows us that Jesus is not oblivious to how things really are here. He's seen it. He knows. He teaches us to pray that the Father's kingdom is to come on earth as it is in heaven. And he knows how crazy that sounds. He knows that the Father's name is not hallowed, made much of here, because we're all trying to make names for ourselves. He knows that the kingdom has not come on earth as it is in heaven yet, because the kingdom is filled with unfaithful and disloyal servants who perpetuate injustice and idolatry and try to go our own way and set up our own kingdoms. He knows that our twisted desires have left us gazing at ourselves, only able to look at our belly buttons and not look up and see the beauty of his will for our life. Jesus knows what it means. He experienced it. He looked on all of our sin and took it onto himself. It's the whole reason that he came. You know, John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world that it might be condemned through him, but that it might be saved through him. Jesus is the faithful servant king who not only fulfills Adam's commission to have dominion, but he takes Adam's curse upon himself. 
As Jesus wears the crown of thorns on the cross, he bears the curse of God, the thorns, which were the sign of the defeat and curse of Adam, are paradoxically transformed into the victory and kingship of Jesus. And as Jesus hangs there on the cross, the crown of thorns upon his head, suspended between heaven and earth, Jesus in himself is bringing heaven and earth together so that the Father's kingdom and the Father's will might be established on earth as it is in heaven forever and ever. Jesus took the crown of thorns so that we might receive the crown of righteousness at his appearing. So Jesus' coronation happened at the cross. But 40 days after his resurrection, he ascended to the right hand of the Father where he is now enthroned, ruling and reigning over his kingdom and preparing a place for his people. And in the meantime, Jesus has sent his church into the world as ambassadors of that kingdom. He told us that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. He shares his power with us when he allows us to go and to make disciples and to baptize them and teach them to obey all that Jesus has said and taught. Disciples of Jesus live between two worlds. We live in the here and now, but we watch and we wait for the king's return. Christians don't just sit idly by while we wait, looking into the sky. We work while we wait. We have been sent in the Holy Spirit's power to God-given spheres of influence where we, like Jesus, bring glimpses of the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Which means for us that we don't establish our own kingdom in school gaining accolades for ourselves. No, we, we study to the glory of God with a sense of wonder at the beauty and order and complexity of the world that he has created. It means that we alter our social media influence so that we, we don't gain a following or wax eloquently about our own opinions, but we give words of grace that might encourage and strengthen for any who overhear. It means that we leverage our bank accounts in such a way that the world around us knows that our treasure is not here on earth where moth and rust destroy, but our treasure is in heaven and our treasure is Jesus Christ himself and we want to leverage our resources to make him known. It means that we see our homes not as status markers or symbols, but we see our homes as outposts of the kingdom where friends and neighbors who are far from God can come and taste and see that the Lord is good and that the Lord's people are radically ordinary people who have received great mercy. Living between two worlds means that we see our families not as our own little people to order around, but we see our families as opportunities where people without father and mother, brother and sister, can come and find fathers and mothers, brothers and sisters, and find meaningful connection far away from home. So we live between two worlds, but as Christians, we strive every day to bring heaven and earth back together. So when we pray for the Father's kingdom and the Father's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, we're asking for the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to places around us where the kingdom can be expanded. We're asking the Spirit to, to give us hearts that submit to the Father's will 
And we're calling our friends and neighbors far from God to submit to the king's kindly rule that will shatter and break the disappointment of their misdirected desires. When we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we're not praying for an escape. We're praying for endurance. We're not praying for an exit. We're praying for an entrance. We're not praying for a departure. We're praying for an arrival. We're not praying for an outbreaking. We're praying for an inbreaking. When we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we are praying in accord with the saints in Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, that says, the kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. His kingdom might not be of this world, but it's coming to this world because the dwelling place of God is with man. And so when we pray, we're praying in unison with the spirit and the bride in Revelation chapter 22 saying, come Lord Jesus. We're praying with all who hear, come Lord Jesus. If the desires of this life have left you wanting, if you're tired of trying to do things your own way, if you're ready to quit going through the motions, if your kingdom is in turmoil, and if by God's grace you want to make a difference in this life, it's time to put all of your chips on the table and put them all in with Jesus whose kingdom is coming and is making all things new. And by God's grace, we will join him and we in praying, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And by his grace, we will see glimpses of the kingdom in Birmingham as it is in heaven. I want to pray for us and then we'll conclude by praying the Lord's Prayer together. Can we pray? Father in heaven, we want your glory to be made known across all of the earth. Father, we want to be disciples who desire your kingdom. We want to be people who submit to your will and will follow your leading wherever that lands us. And we want to be people who live faithfully between two worlds, bridging the gap between heaven and earth in the everyday and in the mundane. And we ask that your spirit will help us to do that faithfully even today. And so as we conclude, we all pray in the way that Jesus has taught us to pray, saying, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.